In her delightful book, Partnering, Jean Olwang, a remarkable business and philanthropic leader, asserts that every significant good thing that happens in the world, or nearly so, from the discovery and closing of the ozone hole in the 70s and 80s to the dismantling of apartheid happens as the result of robust partnerships that give birth to an ability to work at remarkable scale, do great good, and also find great fulfillment. I hesitate to even call these unions partnerships, she writes because the word actually does those relationships a disservice. A partnership is a noun, a thing. Two people may have a partnership or be in one, but to be able to reap the true benefits of the dynamic, it must always be active. It must be a verb, a regular practice. In reading her book, which I began on Monday, I have found incredible resonance. Not just because of the inspiring case studies, but something much deeper in my soul. And by Tuesday, I understood why. And it's this. We, you and me, are made for partnering. We are literally created by it and for it. From the Holy Trinity in creation, the purest of partnerings came the creation of humankind in the image of us. The one God is also and equally they. And they were and are always together, always loving each other, and always cooperating with the Father initiating, the Son complying, and the Spirit executing the will of both, which is his will also. I can't explain this mystery better than that, and the only real metaphor we have for eyes becoming thoroughly and dynamically we is marriage. The Trinity were and are entirely fulfilled. They were not and are not lonely. They did not and do not need anything from outside themselves. And yet out of that blessing, which they could have eternally kept to themselves and been entirely fulfilled and happy, out of that blessing, they bless. And as so often happens in marriage, which is one of the reasons it's a good metaphor, out of the blessing of loving and dynamic partnering came a desire to expand the circle of we. A woman and man bear children in their image. The triune God creates humankind in their image. I say there because that's what the scriptures say where we get the first hint of the Trinity in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And so in the beginning, God the Father, through the agency of his eternal Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, created out of nothing all that isn't God, 
by the word of his command. And then he partnered with mankind. Genesis 1.28, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you see the partnering? But there's more. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a great mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, which is proof that humidity is actually a godly thing. Um, <laughs> And I've never forgiven him for it. <laughs> Not that it's my role. But it was then. It was then that the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And he put the man whom he had formed he put there the man whom he had formed. Why? To work it and keep it. This is, this is not a, a drudgery for God. Not just, he's not, not kind of babysitting, thinking of activities to keep us busy. It actually brings God incredible joy to partner with mankind. He keeps coming back and back and back to it. But, but we abrogated this partnering, what Bishop Julian calls our vice regency. We abrogated it in the fall, surrendering creation to corruption and ourselves to alienation from God, which is why, apart from his grace, we stand condemned and impotent. And yet, so committed is God to partnering with humanity that even in the remedy to the fall, which we get the first hint of in Genesis 3.15 and what theologians call the proto-evangelium. Partnering is integral. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And that offspring shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. There are so many examples of this dynamic partnering in redemptive history, not the least of which is God's covenant with Abraham and Sarah, which we read today from Genesis 15, to bring forth a people that God could call his own and through whom he could bless all the peoples of the earth. In all of redemptive history and on into eternity, partnering is essential. It's just baked into the story. Even in this week's gospel reading from Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35, which you can look at uh, on your, in your Bibles or um, on your devices. But even in this week's gospel reading, in which the idea of partnering doesn't at first seem obvious or maybe even relevant, it is integral. And when you really think about it, for the most obvious reason. 
But first, just a little context for Jesus' words here. Uncontrolled fire in the ancient world was a fearsome and ever-present danger. First century writers speak graphically about fires in Rome's crowded streets and tenements. The summer of AD 64 saw a fire in Rome that lasted a week and destroyed half the city. And though the word fire doesn't appear in this passage, based on Jesus' persistent prophecies of Jerusalem's impending destruction so far in the Gospel of Luke, which actually came true in the year A.D. 70, you get the idea that Jesus just might have had that in mind here. Uncontrolled fire is as terrifying to animals as it is to people, if not more so. And when confronted with it, animals naturally try to escape, but if they can't, some have developed ways of protecting their young. And the picture in this passage is of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings to protect them. There's story after story of exactly this. After a barn fire, those cleaning up have found a dead hen scorched and blackened with live chicks sheltering under her wings, quite literally having given her life to save them. It's a vivid and violent image of what Jesus declared he longed to do for Jerusalem and, by implication, all of Israel. But in this moment, all he can see are chicks scurrying off in every direction, taking no notice of the imminent danger, nor of the urgent warnings of the one who alone could deliver them. This picture of the hen and the chicks is the strongest statement so far in Luke of what Jesus' death would be all about. But before we look at it further, we should go back to the beginning part of this passage. With chicks in mind, the other even more immediate danger was a predator, particularly the fox. The word Jesus uses for Herod Antipas, Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, a brutal and pitiless and ambitious despot, a true psychopath. Sound like anyone in today's world? Most Jews regarded Herod Antipas as little more than a traitorous collaborator with Rome. Jesus regarded him as a usurper, one who had no right to the kingdom promised to God by God to David. And Jesus, in turn, was perceived by Herod as a threat. In Luke's last mention of Herod before this, in chapter 9, Herod was seriously worked up over reports of Jesus' miracles. By having had John the Baptist beheaded, he assumed he'd done away with the prophetic opposition. For most of the story in Luke, Herod's cast a dark shadow across the page, but Jesus, far from being threatened by him, calls him that fox. Today, foxes connote sly cleverness, but in Jesus' world, they also connoted insignificance. To Jews, they were unclean. And Jesus dismissed Herod as powerless to prevent him from carrying on his mission to establish God's rule and reign on earth. He has absolutely no power over him. 
until the time set by God for Jesus' passion and death, which is coming. But Jesus will continue his ministry and his journey to Jerusalem where he will fulfill his mission. And Herod simply can't do anything to stop him. And this picture that Jesus paints of loving care, safely abiding under the shelter of God's wings, was deeply embedded in Israel's consciousness. You see it throughout the Old Testament. Here are just a few examples from Deuteronomy 32:11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinion. From the book of Ruth, Chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Psalm 17, 5 through 7, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your, your righteousness is like the mountains, your judgments are like the great deep. O Lord, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. In Psalm 91, verses 1 through 4, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. Jesus knew these scriptures from boyhood, so it's not at all surprising that he would see his mission in relation to Israel within the image of a self-sacrificing hen with her chicks. Jesus lamented over Jerusalem because he knew exactly what was going to happen there. And his love for the very people who would betray him was so great that he was willing to sacrificially offer himself as their salvation. Jesus knew precisely how desperately a hen desires to protect and gather the ones that she's nurtured into life. And here's where God's eternal bias to partnering comes to bear. His love and regard for the people that he's nurtured into life. It's implicit in the last five words of verse 34. And you were not willing. It's not only up to the mother. Early in the week as I was surfing through articles and blogs talking about this self-sacrificing instinct in mother hens, I ran across a blog written by a pastor who's also a farmer. He and his wife raised free-range chickens, and like most farmers, they also have a bunch of feral barn cats. And the cats, with the natural instinct of a predator, will sometimes go after the chicks. He writes, as we've observed in our free-range chickens, not all chicks run to their mothers in times of danger. Some are paralyzed in panic or frantically try to find a way to save themselves. Others are just distracted and careless. They get devoured. The mother hen cannot run around gathering them individually. They have to come to her. All of the chicks that ever survived the cats at the farm abide in their mother's presence. 
They could easily be cut off from the brood if they wandered, but if they stayed close by, all they had to do was run under the mother's wing or body feathers and let her cover them. The cats never messed with the hen. <laughs> Still quoting. When I approach a sitting hen and her chicks, she will, with a few urgent clucks, gather them under her wings. If I get too close, she can become quite vocal. I don't speak chicken, but no one will convince me that the mother hen isn't saying, back off, buddy, you cannot have my babies. <laughs> a mother hen will do everything in her power to protect her little biddies. It's her instinct. Call it chicken love if you will. That hen is hardwired to protect them. But this requires something of the chicks, too, something critical, readiness, nearness, obedience, and because they must constantly acknowledge that they're helpless on their own, a kind of implicit confession. And I think he's on to something in that passage that I hadn't ever considered before. Because it's not just about Jesus as the loving and protective mother hen, but also, to stay within the simile and for lack of a better term, the way of the chick. We know that Jerusalem, and by extension Israel, has a long history of rebelling against God, simultaneous longing for the tender love and deliverance of the mother hen, while at the same time refusing refusing it by its rejection of the way of the chick, a dynamic posture of readiness, nearness, obedience, and confession to their great peril. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament, killing the very prophets and, and stoning those who for centuries had called them so earnestly to those very things. Over and over again, rejecting or rupturing the dynamic partnering God calls them to for their deliverance. And as we read in Genesis, for the good of the whole world. The big picture in this passage is Jesus' heart for Israel and his resolute intention and determined obedience to go on and fulfill his mission, to take upon himself the full weight of Israel's sin and ours. Because we do exactly the same thing, don't we? Simultaneous longing for the tender love and deliverance of the mother hen while at the same time refusing it by our rejection of the way of the chick, which Beyond telling the story of Jesus' moving resolutely toward his passion and death is one reason I believe this passage is included in the Lenten reading cycle. More than anything, this story has brought to mind for me one of the reasons why I'm so deeply grateful for the wisdom of the church in giving us as a gift the season of Lent. Because if we're attentive to it, more than anything, it restores a dynamic partnering with God. It, it brings us close as chicks to the mother hen. It puts us in a 40-day dynamic of readiness, nearness, obedience, and confession. To consider 
the rupture we've made in our partnering with God. Because it's only there, in that posture, that we can be gathered as a loving hen gathers her brood under her wings. But don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, the, 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 the goal of Lent isn't misery and, and kind of self-flagellation. The goal of Lent is to come with joy to the resurrection of Jesus on Easter, which takes me back to Jean Olwang in her book, Partnering, in which she asked the question, what is it that makes partnering work? She gives six qualities, two of which are that relationship is the highest priority. And the other is this, that the partners find deep, deep joy in the presence of the other. And you can see it on their face. Neurotheologian Jim Wilder defines relational joy as someone who is glad to be with you and being the sparkle in someone's eye. It's what you feel when you see the sparkle in someone eye, someone's eye that conveys, I'm happy to be with you. Lauren and I spent part of the evening on Thursday with some new friends. And I went away with a great feeling of joy from that time. Because I could see in their faces, either they were great actors, which may not be beyond the realm of possibility, considering me, or they were genuinely happy to be with us. That's joy. God designed our brains to run on joy like a car runs on fuel. In fact, our brains desire joy more than any other thing. When Steve and I pronounce the blessing at the end of the service, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you. That is the neurological definition of joy. It's saying, may you feel the joy of God's face shining on you because he is happy to be with you. He loves to be with you and he loves partnering with you. It brings him and us joy. And he made us so that our brains look specifically to the face of another to find joy. And this fills up our emotional gas, gas tank. Joy is primarily transmitted through the face, especially the eyes. Joy is relational. It's what we feel when we're with someone who is happy to be with us. Joy does not exist outside of relationship. And joy is important to both God and us. Psalm 27, 7 and 8, which we just read today. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek Hide not your face from me, O you who have been my help. Spiritual disciplines of Lent, especially silence, 
solitude, prayer, and study slow us down and quiet us enough so that we can seek his face and hear his voice and know beyond a doubt that he's happy to be with us and come with joy to the resurrection. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.